Hello, and welcome to a special two-part series of the Climate Briefing, your trusted platform for dissecting international climate politics. My name is Henry Thrupp. I'm a research analyst at Chatham House, and I will be guest hosting this first episode. In this episode, we will explore how the careful balance between sustainable resource management and over-extraction can be easily upset. What we'll uncover along the way shines a light on some of the most important global environmental issues today, the consequences of which can be seen in increased pollution and environmental degradation, in addition to the erosion of social standards, increased inequality, and worsening community well-being. This is a dynamic that plays out around the world and can often be seen in resource-rich countries blessed with both natural and commodity-related abundance. It is to one such country, Ghana, that we journey to in this podcast. From the verdant landscapes of the Atela Forest Range to the bustling heart of the capital city, Accra, we'll hear from those working closest to these issues. As we explore how the challenges of resource management play out in practice, it becomes evident that these challenges and successes faced by Ghana resonate deeply with many other countries around the world. So, why are we doing this work? The next seven years, up till 2030, will see the United Nations Decade of Ecosystem Restoration carried out. In this time, the Conming Montreal Global Biodiversity Framework, which was agreed upon last year at COP15, the COP for Biodiversity, should see 30% of degraded ecosystems restored and 30% under effective conservation. Now, countries are working out how to implement this agreement. The Global Biodiversity Framework was promoted at the time as a kind of Paris Agreement for Nature, but achieving it requires a global effort to get to grips with many of the main drivers of deforestation or ecosystem degradation. Among these are the complex social, economic, and human factors. To better understand these issues, my colleagues Tiago Hara and Abdul Boudiaf and I traveled to Ghana to hear from experts working on the front line of these environmental issues around landscape conservation, agriculture, and mining in the country, and from those who understand its causes and effects best. In this podcast, we'll briefly set out the scene of why we have chosen to focus on Ghana for our research before we move on to relaying some of the interviews we had with experts in the country from human rights lawyers, conservation experts, museum guides, community leaders, and others. So, why Ghana? Imagine you're standing at the crossroads of history, at a place where the past meets the present and gives a hint of the future. To really get to the heart of Ghana's success in sustainable development, we need to journey back in time and appreciate its rich historical past. Often hailed as a beacon of hope in West Africa, Ghana stands tall. Post its independence from the British Empire in 1957, this nation hasn't just been about growth, it's been about sustainable growth. Crafting a multi-party democracy, fostering long-term economic growth, all the while ensuring its carbon footprint remains relatively in check. We were able to get a better appreciation and understanding of Ghana's rich historical context when my colleagues and I visited the W.E.B. Du Bois Centre in Accra. And if this name rings a bell, well, it should. W.E.B. Du Bois, the eminent American sociologist, historian, and co-founder of the NAACP, has had a lasting impact with works like The Souls of Black Folk. 
began a 66-year odyssey since independence, including its trials, triumphs, and transformations can be seen waving proudly in the colors of its national flag. Our guide at the center dove into the symbolism of Ghana's flag. So yeah, welcome to the house of Dr. Du Bois. This is where he lived for two years when he came to Ghana. And he came to Ghana in the year 1961 because he was invited by Ghana's first president, Kwame Nkrumah, to come here and edit a book called the Encyclopedia Africana Dictionary of African Biography. Now, this book was to tell the history of Africans, who we are, what resources we have, and how we can use the resources to better the land. Now, coming here, because of who he was, he was a Pan-Africanist, a civil rights activist, a teacher, a writer, and a poet. So he was the best man for the job. This whole house was a gift from Kwame Nkrumah to Dr. Du Bois because he had invited him here and had to give him a place to stay. When he was coming to Ghana, he did not come alone, but he came with his second wife, Shirley. Please come with me. In here, we also have the Pan-African flag. It was designed by Marcus Garvey. The red here stands for blood that past leaders have shared in their quest for freedom. The black stands for our skin. And the green stands for the resources we have in Africa. So, how about Ghana today? Beyond the rich tapestry of history and its proud flag, what is Ghana like? How does it stand tall in the modern world? And why does all this matter to us? Deep challenges still remain in steering Ghana forward in the coming years and decades. The World Bank estimates that the international poverty rate in the country remained high in 2022, at just over 20%, and there exists large rural-urban inequalities. Ghana has not been immune to the global economic disruption caused by both the COVID-19 pandemic and Russia's invasion of Ukraine, which has led to high inflation, high interest rates, and currency depreciation. Growth has slowed in the country, particularly in the non-extractive sectors, including agriculture, where farmers have similarly been hit with high prices for fertilizer use. It is to the gold in the nation's flag that the country has looked to steady the ship in this time. The robustness of the extractors industry that caused the muted but positive economic growth in 2022, but in recent years, these sectors have led to environmental, economic, health, and social challenges. It is to the gold industry and agriculture that we now turn to. The numbers tell one story about the importance of both mining and agriculture in the Ghanaian economy. For example, the Ghana Chamber of Mines estimates that in 2021, agriculture made up 21% of Ghanaian GDP, with mining and quarrying around 10%. The agricultural sector itself makes up over a third of the workforce. But the cultural importance of these two sectors in the country also plays an important part. We spoke with Hannah Owosu Koranteng, a human rights lawyer with Wacom. Wacom is a human rights and environmental mining NGO operating within Ghana. Since its formation in 1998, Wacom has focused on solving the many social, environmental, and economic issues that have resulted from increased mining in the country, always with a community-based approach. Hannah spoke candidly with us about the importance of both large-scale and artisanal mining and agriculture in the country but also the economic, environmental, and social challenges thrown up by overmining and how it has impacted both her personally and the country more widely. For us, everything, every value, every norm that we have 
is one because we think we are a people with a common identity and that's all the practices, the cultural practices that we have are linked to either the forests or water bodies. So from childhood through to be puberty rights, through to installing chiefs, and then performing our festivals, we need these two elements in the landscape. And I want to state that uh, we have economic activities, which are basically agriculture, mining for centuries. And so these are the two prominent uh, economic activities that the rural people practice, especially if you are endowed with a natural resource that contains some of these uh, elements. And for many years, yes, we're panning for gold as a second option when agriculture was not in season. For instance, in the dry spells, people go to look for gold or for diamonds or for anything. And if you look at Dumet and other literature, it tells you that uh, the metals that were employed by the rural indigenous communities were superior to what metals we are using for extraction today. And that tells a story because the metals that we are using for extraction today is depriving communities not only of their livelihoods, but your sense of dignity as a human being. I just want to mention a few of the instances. For instance, the, before the economic recovery program, we had underground mine, which is not 100% uh, environmentally friendly. But at least uh, the surface, the surface was available for farmers to cultivate. The streams were there. You go to farm, you fetch the stream and drink if you are thirsty. The women were harvesting uh, spices, mushrooms, snails, what have you. In my village, palm trees are weed because they grow in the wild. So if you are preparing land for agriculture, you have to destroy palm trees. And so that was a major economic income activity for the women. If you are not lazy, you go to the field, you harvest the fruits, you process into oil, and then you are, you are ready to go. The men were using the trees to tap palm wine and then the local gin apetashi, and they were ready to go. And so we were deriving a lot of economic benefits from the standing forest. With the introduction of uh, surface mining, the forest was under threat. And so apart from the food crops, the cash crops, that were destroyed to pave way for mining. Standing forests and the benefits that people derived from them were also destroyed with that. And so it had replications on the natural environment and then the sanity of the environment and also the economic activities. And that's linked to the cultural aspects of the human being where you cannot even perform the basic rights that you are used to because the two elements that you need have been destroyed. If the rivers are flowing at all, uh, the integrity of the river is compromised. 
to the extent that you cannot use them for some of these things. And also for irrigation, for protein source for community people. They were depending on the rivers for their protein sources. And uh, if you go to my village, you put your cassava plantain for fufu on fire, and you are going to inspect your traps. So what you got was what we are going to use for the soup. And so all these things were lost. And the other dimension which is not brought up strongly is that uh, cemeteries were destroyed. My husband and I, we lost a child. The child is lost because the cemetery that we buried the child has been destroyed by surface miners. Uh, we had the occasion of moving shrines, gods, from the environment because uh, they had to mine the place at all costs. And these are things that we cannot really put weight on, financial benefits on. But then it affects the integrity, the dignity of the human being to the extent that uh, you ask your que yourself questions whether you are this or that. And so these are some of the intangibles. But then beyond that, definitely if you have some of these things happening in your environment, there will be resistance. And the people tried to at least understand what was going on. Why are we being moved from our environment? And uh, that was when the atrocities began, the civil political rights violations. I tell people that uh, in mining, you see the spectrum of uh, rights violations, the environmental rights violation, the civil political rights violation, the dignity of the human being is violated. You, you destroy the economic livelihoods of people and they don't even have a place to stay. The family cohesion is destroyed because once you move habitats, you are not destroying just houses. You are destroying lineages. Because in our setup, every room represents a lineage within the family. We practice the extended family system. And so that is how bad the situation was. And uh, over the years, working as an agriculturist, I kept asking myself questions. Why are we in this situation? I worked with uh, the Ministry of Agri when I was 20 years. Now I'm 66, getting to 67. Why, why are we in this predicament? We have the resources, the natural resources. We have the metals. We have the, the, the trees. We have the water bodies. We have the mountains. We have the air, the clean, unpolluted air. We have the cash crops. We have people who are trained. We were counted among the best literate countries in Africa. So why are we in this uh, predicament? And the answer was that, yes, people assumed that all mining was underground mine. And so people welcomed mining. Anytime you talked about, oh, we want to mine, people thought they were going on underground. So there wouldn't be any conflict on the use of the, the, the natural surface. And so land use conflict was not factored in the equation of many community people. And those who even knew that surface mining was devastating could not comprehend the extent of devastation because as I said, where miners were mining, but then the metals were just uh, scratching the surfaces and then filling back so you could go back.
to agriculture after a period of uh, following. And so this uh, huge excavation, use of equipment, use of uh, delicate chemicals and things like that was new to the people. And so they gave in mining without knowing the environmental consequences, mm -hmm. without knowing the social consequences, and all the other human rights uh, consequences that goes with mining. And then uh, they found themselves that they don't have a livelihood. They cannot go back to the land to cultivate. And if uh, you wanted to protect your land or your economic choice, because as human beings, we choose whether to become a journalist or a researchers or teachers or farmers or what. And so everybody has a right to choose your livelihood. Rural communities could not exercise that right of choice. So even when you didn't want mining to locate in your community, mining located and it came with all the atrocities that you can think of. Mm -hmm. And so they became vulnerable. They don't have economic power. And we couldn't just look on. A few of uh, our friends, actually Wakam was uh, started with, uh, by myself, my husband, and then a few of our friends sat down and said, what can we do? We were trained uh, agriculturists, and later on we, I trained as environmentalists. What can I do to at least uh, curtail some of these uh, violations? And if you ask me, the best option out of this mess is not only to sit with governments and talk, only to sit at international meetings and talk. I've, I've seen that. I've been a board member for the EITI. I've been a board member for OECD Watch. I've seen that at the international level. I've been board members at the local level. And I've, I've worked with institutions. And I saw that the way out is to get the owners of the resource to become aware that yes, you have the right to protect your environment. You have the right to protect your dignity. You have the right to protect your economic activity. You have the right to have a social identity as a people. And so we began mobilizing affected people in communities. And I must say that uh, we've done this for about 30 years now. We started mobilizing before we launched WACAM officially in the 1998, 5th September. So officially we've been working for 25 years now in that space. And the focus and the belief was that once community people become aware that yes, uh, we have the right to, di to dignity, and that yes, uh, we've lost some values, but then once we come together, we can build what we have lost. While we were in Ghana, we traveled from the capital city, Accra, to the Atewa Forest Range, a mountainous reserve in the southeastern region of the country, to see firsthand both the immense natural heritage within Ghana and the impact of the mining sector on its integrity. One of our main interlocutors in the region was Daryl Bosu and his team from A. Russia, Ghana. A. Russia is an international Christian environmental and conservation organization that engages in practical nature conservation projects and environmental education. 
While their name implies Christian values, they have a multi-faith approach, which encourages people of all religions to assume the role of environmental custodians. After a long drive from Accra to the offices in the foothills of the Atera range, they gave us a tour of the forest. But what was really interesting was the opportunity to talk to members of the community who live alongside the forest reserves. Before heading out, Daryl gave us an overview of the importance of the Otago Forest Range, both environmentally and economically, to communities in the region and the whole of Ghana, and how it sits at the centre of a raging debate on future resource management in the country. So this map is showing you the Atua Forest. It gives you a perspective of where it is located in the country. And you can see the color features on it. it there's the white areas, and there's also the brown. So this forest is considered an upland evergreen forest ecosystem. The white area shows you the peaks. So the very white areas is areas above 800 meters. So these areas are actually where <clears throat> are the highest peaks in the forest. And the forest, as you can see, has got several communities around them. At the moment, we have about 48 communities on record located all around the community. And these communities basically are engaged into farming activities, and most of them also do pick a lot of forest products, like snails, like medicinal plants. They also do go in for hunting, bushmeat, and all of that. And some of the communities also go into the forest to experience the waterfall for their holidays and have fun and all of that. And now we know because of the other interests, we have seen some community people also going into the forest to do lumbering, illegal chainsaw operations. And because of also the mining issues all around, we also have now threats of people engaging in artisanal mining. And some people also encroaching into the forest to do farming. So it's quite a very... I would say um, green landscape, but also with a lot of complex of land uses and interests in terms of um, the forest. Now, as you can see, aside the communities I've talked about and their needs and also how they depend on the forest, there's also a large-scale mining interest within the landscape. So this is a forest, and this is a cadastral map from the Minerals Commission showing you that that Tawar Forest has got a lot of mining concessions all around it. And these are all legal concessions. So it already tells you the forest is an island in, 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 in a gold field. And the only reason why the forest is still intact is also because the concessions are really just sitting on the boundaries. It's interesting how there are concessions, but there are also communities, right? Mm. With cocoa farming and all of that happening. Now, the issue is this. If you are given a concession, you still need to go and talk to the communities, seek their consent and get permission before you can actually go ahead and mine. So these companies have the concessions, but they are on a day-to-day -day struggle and engaging with communities to see if they will get a permit to mine. So where communities allow them, they do mine. And the other thing you can see is also the fact that you can see some of the concessions are in various stages of processing. There's reconnaissance, some are already finalized, others are in, under prospecting. So the way prospecting is done in Ghana, you are actually not supposed to. If it's a forest reserve, you are not even supposed to use any heavy equipment. You just use trails, calluses, and very simple tools. But if it's in office areas, it's a very different arrangement. Now let's come back to this map. This map shows you everything I've talked about before.
But now it's also showing you what we call the bauxite deposit. So these light blue areas you can see right here, that is all the area that has been identified to have the bauxite deposit. Now, if you look at this area, you realize it's also somehow superimposed over the highest peaks of the forest. And interestingly, in all the work we have been doing in this forest, we realize that a lot of the biodiversity we have seen in this area can also be found in the highest peaks of these areas. And these areas are also what is actually holding and the bauxite. And according to research, the bauxite is actually a filtering um, system, soil system, which also helps the watershed in terms of, because this whole area is a watershed, it helps to actually purify the water, which feeds the underground and so eventually breaks it back to feed the surface water body. So if those areas then are targeted for bauxite mining, it's actually then going to actually take the very essence of what the forest does in terms of providing water services and even serving as habitat for biodiversity. And that is why over the years that we have been here, we got information somewhere in 2011 of government's interest to really give out a concession for bauxite mining in this forest. This started way back in the previous government, the NDC-led government in 2011. We engaged with stakeholders, both the state and non-state actors. And there was a consensus that, look, this forest is so valuable because of the water service, because of the biodiversity that we cannot allow it to be mined. So somewhere in 2013, as part of the discussions with stakeholders, we, we organized what we call the Atua International Summit, where we brought together stakeholders from across the country, chiefs, traditional authorities, communities, government officials, and everybody agreed that the forest is so valuable that we should actually protect it. And one of the ways we could do that is by making it a national park. And national park also because in the protected um, regime, of forest reserves and national parks in this country. If you have a national park status, you actually get so much support from government in terms of securing your boundaries and also your internal assets. So we thought that given in that status, but we're also thinking that because also of the dependency of communities on, on, on the area, you have a, nat a protected a national park, but one that is actually not like what we have in the system, one that is also very flexible, open, and allow some sort of community access to some of the resources that they have already been exploring. And that is why over the years, right from 2012 to about now, we have been on a, I would say an advocacy mode campaign, working with government and also trying to get government to appreciate the fact that, yes, we have significant bauxite resources in this country worth over $400 billion. Atua has got less than 20% of that. And if you are looking at the opportunity costs and the trade-offs, we believe that it is better to secure this forest than also target it for mining. Now, the government has been saying that they have a financial facility arrangement with China, which is about $2 billion. But what we understand also is that Ghana needs less than, Ghana needs about 1% of our bauxite resources to actually service that facility if we really want to pay for the $2 billion with receipts from bauxite uh, exploration and also trade. So it tells you that we can actually pay for that loan if we really want to, without even having to touch this forest. There are other ecosystems in this country, um, other forest reserves in this country, which is a ton of thing, which has also been seen to have about 80% of Ghana's bauxite deposits. Now, it's not that we don't care about ton of thing. The other fact is that you cannot also as a country say that 
don't touch your mineral reserves. A country must develop, and it doesn't make conservation sense if you save forests and people are wallowing in poverty. But this also means that you don't put all your eggs in one basket. We drove with Daryl to a nearby active Galamse mining site, which had only recently been excavated the week before. Galamse mining sites are, they refer to illegal small-scale mining operations in the country. At the moment, this site was empty, but equipment needed for the mining had been left around the pit. Daryl spoke about the complexities of how mining affects agriculture, which itself challenges forest conservation in the country. Daryl also spoke about how to build a brighter future that combines mining, agriculture, and conservation within the Ghanaian economy. You see some cocoa in the back there. And what happens here is that these miners come negotiate with the farmers or the landowners, get access to the area and start digging and processing. And in the way they do it, they come with heavy equipment, heavy duty equipment, most excavators. They dig the site up, process their gold, and then they leave it and go away. So you have a lot of places like this. You see, if you cast your eye in the distance there, you see um, some vegetation after this side and then another side like that. And you have this kind of place dotted all around the landscape. And this has been going on, I would say, for the last more or less decade. And for some of these sites, the miners still go and come back. The original owners will finish processing, taking the gold and processing the gold. Others will think, well, there's some more gold there. Let's go. So even if you sometimes start to do restoration activities, if you are not very careful, you come back and they've come to dig up your restoration sites up because they still think that there's some gold in there. I think over there you can see that there's some fresh digging, probably a week old. Maybe the guys, maybe if we're lucky, we have come to meet them still washing the, 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 the soils here, but it looks like they're not here. Down here you can see the old tailing dams they created for processing. The water has dried up now, you can see the cracked uh, mud here now. So all of this indicates, so right from here going all the way there, these are all mined out areas and there has not been any deliberate effort to actually uh, rehabilitate the land and restore them. So you still see these heaps of stones all over the place. And unfortunately also, when this is happening, they usually work around areas that are close to river bodies because they use the water to wash the stones and also to process the gold. So you can see over there, a dam has been created as an old mining activity. And right behind that dam is a flowing stream. So you have issues of where the heavy metals that are used coming naturally from the ground and also the ones that are used for the processing being washed back into the streams and rivers, also making it very unhealthy for communities that depend directly on the streams for their daily sources of water. Can you tell me a bit about what this land would have been before it was mined? what who the people working on it were, could have been, and where they would go after it's mined, and, and what's in store for this land now that it has been mined. Um, what could this look like in five years, say? So, are you talking about the miners or what it used to be before it was mined? Uh, before it was mined. So before this area was mined, was a cocoa farm. And these were farms that are owned by individuals in the community, we visited the Sejimasi community, and you see mostly on a normal day, if you come to a cocoa farm, you see a lot of women, their family with relatives working on the farm. And this was bringing house with quite some substantial income at the same time also making sure that the land is also very useful for other purposes. But when the mining comes in and displaces the farming, um, they take the gold and within, I'll say sometimes within a few months of six months, they are done, they are gone. 
And if there is no deliberate effort by government or by any entity, NGO or any private company, to come and maybe invest in restoring this area, this area is going to stay like this. And before you realize, it, there will be pools of water here. And you wouldn't be surprised very soon, some kids will be going around trying to fish from the rivers and streams. And then that means that you have to think about the bioaccumulation of heavy metals in the water and in the fish. And eventually, we find it in our food chain. The other thing that we can also see is that when these sites, I mean, come up like this, and you have somebody coming to rehabilitate the land, and they're not careful about treating the land to reduce the toxic load of heavy metals, eventually, if they do cassava here, they do any other food crops, it also bioaccumulates in our food system and eventually in our food chain. So it it's really uh, leaves us with, with more or less, I would say, a menace both of health risks and also in terms of the environmental. Now the land is degraded. We are also going to certain new species of succession coming up here, which might not necessarily be productive land. But I mean, this area could have been continued to be used for cocoa farming if it were left to be what it used to be before. But now that it's like this, we can never tell what it's going to be. I mean, it might stay like this for 10 years. It will still soon be overgrown with trees. You might not know, you come here trying to get around, you could even fall into a ditch. So we've had instances where you've seen kids fall into pits and they've been fatalities and all of that. So I think that as much as possible, we need to avoid this. That is why if anybody wants to do mining, we believe that it needs to be very regulated. Whoever is mining needs to be told where they can mine, where they cannot mine. And even if they should mine, they should also be made responsible to rehabilitate the land and restore it so that everybody can, can benefit from, from the from the process from the land, rather than just living like this and going away. And the people who would have worked on this land when it was a farm, yeah. what happens to them? Where do they find alternative jobs? Or Now that's a very good question. What we have seen is that when people sell their farmlands to these miners, we, as, we would have expected that they go home and enjoy their mining quietly, but most of them still want to keep farming. And if you cast your eye beyond the degraded area in the distance, that is the Atiwa forest. So what we have seen in most places where there are forest reserves and there are also mining areas close to these areas, when farmers are displaced, they quickly move into the farm in the forest areas and farm there quietly. So if they are not spotted by a forestry officer to really drive them out of the area, they can stay in the forest and keep farming for a long time. And that is why we, we have seen an increase in encroachment from farming activities in that forest because all around the forest, the, the farmers have been displaced by both legal and illegal mining activities. So most of them now have found some, um, I would say, hiding places or farming areas within the forest. And this eventually would have some negative impact on, on all of us because we eventually going to lose the integrity of the forest and the services in terms of water and all of that is also going to be fought by everybody who depends on it for other services. And just look, looking at the site, you've got the red of the mine and then the bright green of the forest. And I can imagine it's, it's back-breaking work to dig up the, yeah. the soil. Yeah. I'd be interested to hear, who are the people who are mining? Are they, are they locals? Have they come into the area? Are they young? Are they all ages? Well, uh, for most of these mining, and particularly this area, what we have seen is that people coming from all over the, all over the region. We've seen um, Burkinabis here, Malians, all of them staying in the communities and coming out in the day to, to, to mine and all of that. But also there are, of course, certain local people, natives here, 
who join in and most of them are very young people and like you said it's, it's very hard work so we have, we have also seen an increase in abuse of um, drugs and addiction the use of tr a lot of trauma and all of that just to keep them really in, in with a lot of energy their energy ramped up and working in this side so i think mostly you see the young people i mean here you occasionally see some very young kids i mean who are school of school going age so more or less getting kids here as well. Most of them coming just to see what they can get. And I think there's been quite a lot of education to try and tell the miners that if you are going to mine, just make sure the miners don't join you. We have also seen sometimes the women come around to also, I mean, work behind the men and pick what small nuggets they can get. Or there's also a lot of petty trading by the women here so they can do some small trade and all of that. So once these sites open up, of course, a lot of people get to work at the site. Those who are directly in the pit, those who are digging, those who are washing, and those who follow like, like the egress, follow the cattle, pick up the insects and all that, you see all of that. And the women also follow the men, pick up the crumbs from the table. All of these are going on. So people come from all over the place, from Accra, from, like I said, Burkina Mali. So it's really a very, um, activity that involves a lot of people. And, and I think that, yes, if it could be managed well, it could, really be uh, transformative. What, how would you go about then stopping this dynamic where a land is mined and then it's degraded and they have to move on to a new, new site? What are the opportunities in the area that could break that cycle? Well, I mean, we see these areas like this now, but also being mindful of the fact that 10, 15 years ago, this area was not like this. People in Israel used to be farmers. Everybody knew if you get up in the, in the morning, what you are going to do is farm. But we also saw a strong promotion of mining as a livelihood option by the government itself. So for us, we think that it should start with government and the kind of policies they push out there. If they had invested in the farming and made sure the farmers were getting significant extension support to help them increase their yield, then there wouldn't be any need for them to say, my yields my income is not sufficient. And then because the land is not just also, once you dig the land, you lose everything that is on top. And that is the water, the farms, and also everything else like the biodiversity and everything. So I believe that if government, we should start with government itself, not pushing an agenda of accelerated extractive industry in the country, but more or less balancing, balancing the land use systems and also the investment. So I think we need to see government invest in agriculture equally as they invest in promoting the extractive industry. But at the same time, we also need to start looking at promoting some agro-based industry. So far, we are just too dependent on just producing the raw material, selling it. I'm sure we could create more jobs if we start adding value by processing, packaging, and even doing some, um, I would say, local level marketing of the product, whether are always looking at the international level. And there's still a lot of opportunities. For example, this forest, for example, has opportunities for tourism. And if it is developed, I also see several young people providing guiding services for bird watching, for hiking, several things to do. Now, this will kind of also let them reflect on not only the fact that income should, should come in slowly, but also the long-term sustainability of how um, we, we should also get our income. So I believe it should be a mix of strategies and some policy direction and investment who needs to guide a, a sustainable use of, of this landscape. Because frankly, I believe that we cannot mine our way out of unemployment.
we need to diversify and look more at other green options that exist for all of us. Across all the experts we spoke to during this fieldwork, a number of solutions and intervention points were raised. Daryl spoke of promoting a balanced approach to land use while investing in agri-based industries and investment in sustainable tourism opportunities, while Hannah spoke to the importance of community engagement and education. Across other interviews too, we heard of the need for greater enforcement of policies within Ghana and the mainstreaming of responsible mining practices, such as environmental transparency and accountability and green procurement. At heart, many of these policies speak to increasing the options and opportunities for communities to thrive and keeping the human factor central at all points. For many we spoke to, no single one of these policies or solutions were a silver bullet, but together they could form a strong package to disentangle the effects of mining, agriculture and conservation, all of which will continue to play a part in Ghana's future economic development. The lessons learned from how the country goes about this will be important for other resource-rich countries across the region and globally. We have now come to the end of this first episode of the special two-part mini-series within the Climate Briefing. As always, a 30-minute podcast is not nearly enough time to cover all of the complexities of resource management, but we hope this has shed some light on the challenges faced in the next decade of ecosystem restoration, which is of global importance. I want to thank all of our partners in Ghana who generously gave their time to speak to us and to arrange and facilitate our logistics around the country, including, but definitely not limited to, A Russia Ghana, KNUST, and CSIR Thorig. Thank you to your usual hosts, Anna Avery and Anthony Froggett, for providing us this platform to discuss our research. If you're interested in finding out more about this field work, and to watch many of the interviews discussed in this podcast, please keep an eye out for a new article to be released on the Chatham House Forest Governance website shortly. Stay tuned for the second episode of this series, where we hear from my colleague Tiago, an interview with Ramsam Kamushu from the Indigenous Movement for Peace Advancement and Conflict Transformation, Impact Kenya, and Oda Alma Smith, an environmental lawyer from the Forest People's Programme about how indigenous peoples and communities are consulted and impacted in climate policy decision-making, why this is important and how indigenous consultation and representation can be improved. We look forward to seeing you next time. Thank you.